What is beauty? What is beauty? What comes to mind when you hear the word beauty or beautiful? Perhaps you think of your spouse, your children, maybe a favorite vacation spot, or even yesterday my family hit up the Taubman Art Museum and we got to see some, we saw there some beautiful paintings and sculptures. What comes to mind when you think of the word beautiful? Is it possible then to find beauty in the difficulty and darkness of our lives? Maybe some of you are here this morning and you find yourself in a season where you see little around you that you think is beautiful or lovely or endearing. Is it possible for us to find beauty in the dark seasons of our life? Is the beauty of God Himself something we can see even when everything else around us is hideous? What do we even mean by the beauty of God? In our Advent series, each year we like to slow things down as a church a little bit. We take these four or five Sundays each year to kind of stop and reflect, to remember and recall the ways that we have seen God at work in, in our individual lives and, and in the life of our church, and to ask ourselves questions like these. And consider just at a very basic level, what does it look like in our lives to find beauty in the coming of Christ and in His second coming? That is, that is what the word Advent means. Maybe you're not used to using that word, but that's, that's all that Advent means. It means arrival or the coming. And so each year during these weeks, we like to take up a specific book or, or section of the Bible and, and consider the beauty and the glory of Christ in His coming and in His second coming and reflect on the ways that He's been at work in our lives. See, we need to be reminded of what Isaiah says in Isaiah 45, 2-3, where he writes, I will go before you. This is God Himself speaking. He says, I will go before you and make the rough places smooth. I will shatter the doors of bronze and cut through their iron bars. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden wealth of secret places, so that you may know that it is I, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel, who calls you by your name. See, the promise of this passage is that there is beauty in the darkness, that there are treasures to be had in the sorrows of our lives. They unfold before us in ways that we don't expect, in ways that we don't initially see, but if we search, if we look for them, we can see them. And friends, I think God does it that way on purpose to show us finally and fully that salvation, redemption, goodness, beauty belongs to Him and Him alone. In some ways, this is what the book of Ruth is all about. Seeing the beauty in the most darkest and uncertain of times. The book of Ruth is not like the book of Exodus that includes the entire nation of Israel. It's not even like the, the, the writings about the kings where their, their decisions and their moves influence the entire nation. Or even like the prophets who are calling the nation of Israel back to God in times of exile. No, the book of Ruth is, is a peculiar book. 
in our Bibles. It's a peculiar book in the Old Testament. And so over the next four weeks, myself and Pastor Sean and Pastor David, we're going to take up these four chapters of this short little book and consider the beauty of redemption in the darkest of times. And our hope is during these sermons, you'll see God's grace in the midst of of things like, like losing loved ones, in the midst of economic frustration, of, of longing for a spouse, of desiring a place to belong. And ultimately, we'll see God's grace in the promise of a Savior, a Savior sent to redeem God's people that we may know, as Isaiah said there in Isaiah 45, that it is Yahweh alone who calls us by our name. So this morning, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to join me by turning to Ruth chapter 1. Ruth chapter 1. If you didn't bring a Bible of your own or, or don't have a Bible, you can always use our Bible there in front of you in the pew. Ruth chapter 1 is on page 208. 208. If you're new to the Bible, just turn to page 208. And when you get there, that's where I'll begin reading here in just a moment. And as always, friends, if you don't have a Bible of your own, you have come to the right place this morning. We have some Bibles that we would love to give you. They're out on the table in the foyer. You, they're blue. You can grab one on your way out. If you've got a friend who needs a Bible, you can grab one and give it to them. I'm going to be reading all of Ruth chapter 1 here in just a moment. And as I do, let me invite you to stand once more out of the honor of the reading of God's Word to us today. Friends, this is the word of the Lord to us on this day from Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out out from that place where she was with her two daughters-in-law. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you that you may find rest each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb, that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. 
But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? And she said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You may be seated. Friends, here we have chapter one of this book, and there's really, it kind of breaks down into three different sections. And so let me, let me give you those three points. We have included them there in your bulletin, and you can follow along there if you would like. But here are the three points that are written down there. No bread in Bethlehem, no husband for the Moabites, and no joy for the widow. And as we explore each of these three sections and look at the emptiness, really the emptiness of this first chapter, my prayer is for us that, to see that only by turning to Christ can we have hope in an empty world and that we would return to Christ no matter what we must leave behind, trusting in His promised fullness. Let's begin then by looking at no bread in Bethlehem. We see this in verses 1 through 5. And in these opening verses, we find what might seem like just some facts. If you're familiar with this story or read back through it from time to time in your Bible reading, you may, you may just feel like these first five verses, just, just some facts, just laying out some information, some names and some places. But really, these, these names and places that are mentioned here in these first five verses help us begin to understand what kind of story this is going to be. It helps us understand some fundamental facts that then allow our hearts and minds to feel and know what these people are experiencing so that we might understand the beauty of what God is doing among them. It all starts with a certain time. You see that there in verse 1. In the days of the judges. In the days of the judges. Now this is a, is, is a very important time in the life of God's people. It's kind of a time which we may call no man's land. These are chaotic days. If you've read back through the book of Judges recently, I think we're going to get to it in our church-wide reading plan this year. Or, I'm sorry, next year, 2022. I'm already thinking ahead. You find that these are, these are chaotic times. The book of Judges says throughout, and he even closes there. If, if you look back, if you can flip back, it, it ends this way. The book of Judges 21-25 says this, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Feels a little bit familiar to our own times, doesn't it? We see that the days in which Ruth exists and, and these people exist is, is a time of chaos, which makes the book of Ruth a life-filled oasis in the midst of this death-filled society. And by the end of this book, we'll see that what begins with the chaos of the judges will close with the hope of a future king. But the story is not just set within a certain time, but it's also set within a certain place. Well, a few different places, but, but the first one it mentions here is very important. 
We see that they find themselves in Bethlehem in Judah. Where, where is this place? Well, friends, it's, it's, it's none other than the very promised land of God. It, it is the land that God promised Abraham way back in Genesis 12. That the people in leaving Egypt worked their way to, but, but in their disobedience, that generation that came out with Moses was kept from. But we see in Joshua that the people finally enter into through conquesting other nations. It is this promised land. This land is a place of plenty, making them a blessing really to all the nations. Now this is important because the land, the places, the cities and, and the, the nations and, and, and the geography here play an important and integral part to understanding the story because it represents God's very words of promise. But Ruth is not just set within a certain time and within a certain place, but, but it's also a certain circumstance, this famine. You see there from the beginning we are reminded of the emptiness and barrenness of life in this world. This, this famine represents the brokenness of creation itself. As we're told here about a famine of hungry men and hungry women and hungry children, our, our minds race to consider our own hungers. Maybe not physically, but, but emotionally, mentally, spiritually. The barrenness that we feel in the world around us. Many of us, while we may think that in our own times we're high on the hog, we know in our very souls the hunger pangs that can hit and loss and suffering and need. But here in, in, in Ruth 1, we see that in their physical hunger that they were left wanting. They were left without food. Oftentimes problems enter then when our desires become disordered and morph into, into monsters that drive us towards unwise decisions. And this is exactly what we see happening here in this place, in this time, within this famine. It's exactly what we see when we're introduced to this flurry of names there in verse 2. Look back at verse 2. As I said in the beginning, this is a small story. There's one man, his wife, and, and his two sons. There's no miracles there's no shining prophecies. There's no large-scale nation-altering events here, but, but it zooms in into this one single family. But it's in these opening verses that tell us much more than just some opening credits of a movie or a television show. We get very, a very glimpse of the gospel itself. But just consider this family and where they're at and, and where they're going. There's this man, Elimelech. In the Hebrew, we have to understand that names mean everything. We, we learn something about a person based on their name. And Elimelech here, his name mean, means God is my king. God is my king. And this is the very question that is put to him straight out of the gate. In a time of famine, in a time of barrenness in the land, will you own your name or not? We see that he lives there in Bethlehem. I wonder if you know what Bethlehem means. It means house of bread. House of bread. And we see here in this opening chapter that in the house of bread, there is no bread. There is no bread in this house. There's no bread within Judah, this promised tribe of the Messiah way back in Genesis 50. 
see this man Elimelech then is questioned if God will be his king. We see that his wife is questioned with the same thing. Her name, Naomi, meaning pleasant. And then he has these two young sons. We see that this family leaves. They leave the promised land. They leave the promised city, the house of bread, and make their way for a place called Moab. Now, Moab may not mean very much to you, but for Ruth and the people during this time, Moab meant a lot. Let me give you a quick rundown of of where we get the very nation of Moab to begin with. It all begins back in Genesis 19. Moab is a nation that's born out of Lot's incestuous relationship with his daughters. And so right out of the bat, we got some issues. And then we read later in in, in Numbers 22 through 24, not not too long before Ruth's time, that, that it's Moab, the king of Moab, who sought out Balaam to curse God's people. They've continually, the Moabites have continually made themselves enemies of God. Finally, if you you go back and look in the time of Judges, maybe even when this is happening in Judges 3, Eglon, who is the king of Moab, torments God's people for 18 years. So in some ways, for Elimelech to go from Judah to Moab answers the question of will God be his king right there. He has betrayed, in some sense, the covenant promises to go to the enemies of God's people. The Moabites worship the god Chemosh, who is regularly worshipped through child sacrifice. All that to say that these are God's very enemies. And yet here comes Elimelech on into the place of Moab. Look back at verses 3 through 5 then. Everything about their names, God is my king, pleasant, would cause you to be hopeful of life. And yet, note the repetition there in 3 through 5, or really 1 through 5 of leaving Bethlehem and going to Moab, leaving Bethlehem and going to Moab, and what happens? Elimelech dies. Elimelech takes his family outside of the land of the promise, and he dies. Now the text is not clear if this is God's judgment upon him, but I think that it leans more towards yes than no. That Elimelech in leaving the land of promise, in denying the promise of the house of bread, finds himself dead because of it. But then we're told about the two sons. The two sons take wives outside of not just the place of the family, but, but the promised family. They, they intermarry with women of another nation, which is prohibited in the law of God. Then we find they too are met with death. These three men, their names never mentioned again in this book, only found on three gravestones, are gone. Are gone. Because of this, there is now a a definite and immediate risk to Naomi, the mother, and the daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. This is vitally important for us to understand, to understand really the rest of the book. It's going to become really important as Sean gets into chapter 2 next week. That in this culture, women were not able to care for themselves in really the way that, that women can in our own. 
And so we have to put our own understanding, our own cultural lenses to the side for a second and understand that, that during this time, women, specifically adult women, had to have the protection and the provision of a man over them who could work and provide and care for them from outside threats. So this famine then is a living reminder of the emptiness that Naomi herself has come to know. Think of everything about Naomi in this moment with her husband and her two sons dead. She's no longer living at home. She has no husband she has no sons. She really has no way to provide for herself. We see this really there in, in verse 6 when it says, this is getting ahead a little bit, that she heard in the fields of Moab. She's out trying to take care of herself and care for herself in the very fields. Friends, what I want you to see here is how this works itself out in our own lives then. Now I realize that none of you have, that I know have been to Moab. But there are Moabs in, in our own lives all the time. This is a picture of the world itself and, and of the promise of the world itself. You've got to realize for Elimelech and Naomi and their sons, Moab promised life. It promised food. It promised everything that they thought that they needed in that moment. But in the end, it only delivered death. It only delivered emptiness. And so in betraying the promise of the covenant of God in the promised place and going to live among their enemies, they found the reality that we all find when we indulge in sin, that it overpromises and underdelivers. That in the end, it only leads to death. We have this picture here in the, the two aspects of, of Bethlehem and Moab of what it means to be in Christ and to be outside of Him. To be in Christ is to have life. Even in barrenness and darkness and emptiness. And to be outside of Christ, though, is death. Hoping in this world always overpromises and underdelivers. We see this continue to play itself out there in the next section as we see no husbands for the Moabites in verses 6 through 18. As we turn to this part of the passage, we find that as for us, Naomi and her daughters-in-law, lives are marked by, by turning, by a deciding which direction they will go. This word return, and in some, some of the verses it's not translated as return, so I'll try to point them out when we get there. But this very idea of returning is mentioned at least 12 different times in just this chapter. This word, return. So it becomes really a key to understanding what happens from here on out. Look back at verses 6 through 7. We find here the first of only two explicit statements about what the Lord, that is Yahweh, does in the book. You look there, it says, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab. Notice how he, he, the, the writer's just saying Moab over and over and over again for you to understand where they are at in the place of darkness, that Yahweh had visited His people and given them food. We see here that famine is finally over in the house 
that is the Beth of covenant promise. Lahem, bread has been provided. But she hears in Moab. Food is provided, it says, for them, but not for her. And this leaves Naomi with the choice. But not just her who has to make a choice here. We see that word return there at the end of verse 7 is applied to all three women. So she set out from that place where she was with her two daughters-in-law and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Friends, we see that they are on the way. There's this dramatic conversation that's about to take place in verses 8 through 18 as they're in, in, in what we may call nowhere land. They're not in Moab any longer. They've started to go on their way, but they're, they're not back to Bethlehem yet. They're somewhere there in the middle, and there's the choice that they all have to make. Will we go to the house of bread, or will we go back to the place where we thought we would find bread? And Naomi, for her, is returning to the place of promise. But for these widows, the question is, which way will they go? And friends, more hangs on this decision than anyone could have ever imagined. In fact, the Messiah himself hangs on the decision of these two widowed women. Let's look back then, Naomi's first plea with them. Naomi finally speaks. It's the first speech of the book, the first talking in the book. She speaks with really common sense and consideration. Moab is is home to these two women. It it is where they are from, which means everything. They have the memories that they've built here in their home place. They have the common ancestry. They have a shared history there. There are memorials for sure in Moab of great events. They have their holidays that they celebrate, the culture that they know and that they love. They know the language. They know the customs. They know the dress. They have a shared ethnicity. For Orpah and Ruth, Moab is where they belong. Most of all, they have the opportunity there that Naomi draws out a family of husbands and sons and daughters, rest and refuge and hope, it seems, is held out in going back to Moab. And so Naomi makes good common sense to send them back. She says, you have shown me kindness you have dealt kindly with me. It's this Hebrew word, hesed. Hesed, we find it throughout the Psalms talking about God himself. It's his faithfulness and his loving kindness and his loyalty and commitment to his own people. And Naomi uses this word hesed here to talk about Ruth and Orpah, that they have been loyal daughters-in-law. They've at least come this far with her and they've committed to her and they've had her back and they've been going with her. She says, you don't have to keep doing this, though. Go back and find for yourself everything that you need. We see this play itself out in there in verse 10. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. And so Naomi then gives a second plea, doesn't she? She goes through, she, need, she realizes that her Moab lure is not going to work in getting them to go back. And so she goes a different direction. And she brings up something that's really important for us to understand for the rest of the book. So I'm going to spend a minute here. It's this idea of a liverite marriage. A liverite marriage. This word levir in the Hebrew, it means brother-in-law. And it's this idea that we see laid out back in Deuteronomy 25. So stick with me for a second here. This idea that if a man and a woman are married 
and the man dies and there's no heir to the family, then whoever is the next in line, the next brother-in-law who is not married, he will take for that woman as his wife. And the first child that she has will be consecrated as if he were a son for the first marriage. Does that make sense? You follow me there? So the brother-in-law, the lavir, he's going to take the widow for his own wife so that they may have children and that son will be as if he's born to the deceased man. There's three reasons for this really. Number one, to carry on the family name. The name is important. As we, we saw back in the book of Acts, the name of Jesus is brought up over and over and over again. The idea of the name, the family name, is important for redemptive history. We're looking for the seed that's going to crush the head of the serpent. We must continue the family name. Reason number two is to carry on the farming and the work of this land that God Himself has given them. They have inherited this, this holy land from God, and so it was important that they would have heirs to continue to farm that land. But the third reason was maybe one of the most important. You needed children to help care for, specifically, the moms, the widows. As the husbands may die, who is going to provide for this woman near the end of her life? It was expected that her sons would care for her. Do you hear that, children? We see all these things then flourish from just shadows under the new covenant, don't we? That, that we see the importance of being born again into the family with Christ as our true older brother, with God as our Father. That we have been given not, not, not a holy land, but we have been called to expand the very kingdom of God that crosses borders and that crosses lands. And that we too, as God's people in this day, are called to care for those around us like orphans and widows in their time of need. With all this, we see that for Orpah and Ruth, going back to Moab was the only sensible thing to do. Nothing else makes sense, at least from a worldly standpoint. And all of you may read this and you may think, well, yeah, why wouldn't they go back? This is what makes Ruth's response then, her decision, all the more extraordinary. Let's look at it. Look back at verses 14 through 18. And they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. She said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God shall be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May Yahweh, notice she uses the covenant name here, may Yahweh do so to me, and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. That word cling there, clung in verse 14 it speaks of this loyalty that's, that's really born out of a covenant. But what covenant? What covenant? She does not have the covenant with her husband anymore. And, and Naomi's just highlighted how, how she can't have any more children. And even if she did have more children, by the time those sons grew up, Ruth's biological clock had probably run out at that point. So there was no hope of her having any offspring. So, so it's not that covenant then. What is the covenant here that she's clinging to Naomi over? With surprising twist, the Moabite woman takes upon her lips the covenant name of God Himself, Yahweh, the Lord. 
And she makes this statement here that, that you really find throughout the Old Testament when God himself comes and makes a covenant. You see this in, in, in Abraham and the covenant God makes with him in Genesis 12 and, and 15 and 17. This idea of blessing and cursing. And so she says, if, if I leave you, if I depart from you, if I'm no longer loyal to you, if I'm no longer keeping with you, may Yahweh himself come and rain death down upon me. Friends, what do we see in Ruth? We see nothing less than a statement of faith, of trust, of change in allegiance. We see that we're called to the same thing. This is a decision of faith. The covenant language shows us what's going on in her very heart. That she no longer longed to be in Moab with its false gods and its false promise. But she longed to be in the place of God's promise, with God's people, with God's person, Naomi, and in his covenant love. Friends, I don't know about you, but this is what the gospel does to us. This is what tasting the gospel causes us to do. It causes us to leave everything. By nature, we belong to Moab. Ephesians 2 says that we are, are dead in our trespasses. We are on the outside of the covenant. The world with all its kingdoms and all of its glory encapsulates us and, and enraptures us. And we long for the things of the world. By nature, we are tempted then to stay in Moab. It, it may look sense from a worldly standpoint to run to the things of this world. But by Christ, we are welcomed into the true and everlasting covenant. So if we have seen the gospel of Jesus Christ, if we have tasted and known what Christ has accomplished for us in His death and in His resurrection, if we have seen that life is found in Him and Him alone, then we must make that decision to follow Him by faith. We must run hard after Him. We must pursue the One who promises life. We must live by faith and not by sight. And this is, this is not what the apostles say themselves. This is not what Peter says himself in John 6. After this, many of Christ's disciples turned back and, and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And so friends, I press you this morning with the same question. If Christ has the words of eternal life, where else will you go? And yet this decisive choice of following Jesus is one that may lead us into valleys of deep sorrow. We see this in the final section in No Joy for the Widow. In this final section with Naomi and Ruth returning back to the house of bread, empty as they are, we are faced then with the, re the weighty reality of the bitterness of this life and the sorrows that we often find ourselves in. Let's look back at verse 19 first. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem, the house of bread. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? 
We see here the first mention of the women of Bethlehem here in chapter 1. They're going to come back up in chapter 4. They kind of create this nice little bookend to the passage. They kind of create this, this, this chorus almost. They said, is this not Naomi? Remember I said earlier how names speak of someone's identity. And for here, it means everything for Naomi. Her name means pleasant. But her life has not been so pleasant. And so what does she say? Naomi asked to be called Mara. Mara. It is a name that means bitter. Bitter. Not that she's bitter, but that her life is no longer a fragrant aroma. It is no longer sweet to the lips, but it tastes awful. It feels awful. She comes back to Bethlehem with no husband, no sons. Some of you who have lost loved ones know the, the heartache of this. She comes to a place where she has nothing. She has no way of providing for herself. Elimelech is dead. Malon and Kilion are dead. And she's only got one daughter-in-law left. And she doesn't even really get mentioned here. She gets kind of sucked into the background. As if the, the women of Bethlehem are like, we don't really care about that weird Moabite woman. This is Naomi. This verse here then is a summary, verse 21 of the whole chapter. It shows us everything we need to, go, need to know. Look back at verse 21. I went away full and Yahweh has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when Yahweh has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? We see here three things I just want to point out quickly in this one verse. That she says, I went away. That it was her that went away. That whatever influence she had in the life of her marriage with Elimelech, she bore some responsibility in leaving, but, but it is... Not her who came back, but Yahweh brought her back. We see here God's sovereignty in this. That He had bruised her to the point that she returned. We see here the second thing, that, that she went away, but that, that God brought her back. That she went away from the covenant promise, but God has brought her back into it. And she went away full, the third thing, and back empty that the state of things has left, that when she left Bethlehem, she was full, though she was in the middle of a famine, and she comes back to a time when there is plenty, though she herself is empty. What the covenant God has done for Naomi here, we should say is severe. My friends, it is severe because her full life has turned to bitterness. But at the same time, this is a severe mercy. God has brought her back empty, but He has brought her back. Don't miss it. Look back at verse 22 then. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab one more time. Don't forget where they were. And they came to Bethlehem. Don't forget where they've come. At the beginning of the barley harvest. The story for today at least ends with a glimmer of hope. See, it began with a famine in Bethlehem. But this chapter ends telling us that now is a time of harvest. 
that there is a time now when the house of bread will be full again. We are reminded once more here in this final section of God's kind providence, though bitter as it may be, to always care for his people. And friends, this is what I want to close by helping you see. That as bitter as our lives may be, at times the very heart of God is to care for His people. That He will sustain us, though we may be full or empty. That no matter where you have come from or how you have gotten here, it is God who cares for us. We see this only in part with Naomi changing her name from from Naomi to Mara, from pleasantness to bitterness. But friends, there is another Mara in our Bible. We just pronounce it a little bit different. See, it's in Luke 1 that we're told about this woman, Mary. Her name means bitterness. It was Mary who called out into the darkness and the bitterness of a world where God had been silent for some 400 years. And it was this bitter one to whom God spoke and God provided a different kind of bread in Bethlehem. It was in her womb that God gave the very bread of life, that God gave Himself. And it is here in the bitterness and cold that Jesus Himself steps into our lives with warmth and sustaining power more than we could ever need. This is the beauty of the Gospel, my friends, is that Jesus would come and take on poverty, take on emptiness, take on bitterness Himself so that we may be made rich through His death, so that we may be full in His life, and so that we may have everlasting hope in His resurrection. Friend, maybe you're here this morning and you would not consider yourself a follower of Jesus. Hear the call of Ruth 1. Hear the call of Naomi. Hear the very call of God Himself to return from the far country of Moab and come And come to the one who can sustain you alone. Friends, you may be here this morning and you are a follower of Jesus, but you you are stuck in sin. And you feel like all hope and all joy is being ripped away from you, but you refuse to return. You refuse to humble yourself and turn to the living God who alone can give you endless and everlasting joy. Friend, hear the call of this passage. That it is Jesus alone who can fill you. And for those who are here this morning who are weak and broken down, who are suffering like Naomi, that your life was once full, but now it feels bitter. It feels empty and you are left wanting more. Friends, see that Jesus stepped into your bitterness once, handing over His glory for your poverty, taking your bitterness upon Himself. See that it is your Savior who can help. That He can come and comfort us. As Isaiah writes in Isaiah 42, a bruised reed He will not break and a smoldering wick He will not quench. If you're here this morning and you are bruised and you are smoldering, look to the very one who can care for you like none other.
He is the true bread of life. And when we see that we have a God who is able to come into our bitterness and still work in mighty ways, we become people who can sing like that second Mary did. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is His name. And mercy, mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. Friends, see and know that He who is mighty has done great things for us in sending the bread of life into our famine. See and know that He who is mighty has done great things as we prepare to come to this table. May we feast on Christ in our hearts, tasting and seeing that all that He does is good. Let us pray. Father, we come before You this morning declaring, lifting up the the goodness and the glory of Jesus Christ the one who comes into our bitterness and gives us hope in the midst of it. Lord, would you keep us, watch over us, enliven our hearts to worship you now as we partake of the table. Remind us of the one who can sustain us by his life, death, and resurrection. The one who even now intercedes on our behalf at your right hand. It is in Jesus' name that we do pray. Amen.